0: Greetings, and welcome to episode five of the Heavy Metal Bebop podcast, a series of conversations about jazz and metal. I'm your host, Hank Steamer. So as I mentioned before, the show is now live in Apple Podcasts, so I encourage you to search for Heavy Metal Bebop there, and if you like what you hear, please consider subscribing and leaving a rating or review. And you can also check out the show at heavymetalbebop.podbean.com. That's heavymetalbebop.p.o.d.b.e.a.n.com. So our guest this time around is Vernon Reed and in this series I've spoken with many musicians who have a serious appreciation for heavy metal and some who have plenty of experience playing it but Vernon is in another category altogether. He's a genuine legend of the genre whose band Living Color achieved household name status with their 1988 debut Vivid. And both before Living Color and alongside it, he's worked on the cutting edge of jazz, playing with artists such as drummer Ronald Shannon Jackson and pianist Jerry Allen, as well as in the project Spectrum Road, a tribute to the Tony Williams Lifetime that featured Jack Bruce, John Medeski, and Cindy Blackman-Santana. And so here in this conversation, Vernon is someone who has a really refreshing perspective on genre. He's absorbed influences from rock, jazz, and beyond, and he's addressed each of these different vocabularies with reverence, but at the same time, he's avoided taking on any kind of stylistic bias that might limit his expression or appreciation. In that sense, he really embodies a certain kind of open-mindedness that I've been trying to explore with these heavy metal bebop interviews, so I was thrilled to have a chance to speak with him. All right, let's get into it. I want to just say quick thank yous both to Kevin Calibro for facilitating this interview and Caroline Harrison for creating the new Heavy Metal Bebop logo, which you should be able to view in either Apple Podcasts or Podbean. You'll hear a little bit of Leave It Alone from Living Color's 1993 album Stain. And after that, my conversation with Vernon Reed. <laughs> wanted to speak to you for this but it was kind sure. of like a matter of just like getting there yeah. um you know there, there's there's a million topics to get to but i guess you know i, I wanted to talk about specifically like uh T- tony williams lifetime and just sort of sure. the impact that had on you and how you know that sort of led to you to spectrum road and things like that oh yeah if, man if we can start a, with that. that's yeah. a great that's
1: a yeah yeah well tony williams lifetime i mean i became aware of tony williams because of my interest in miles davis and um and it's so kind of a little bit backwards in a way because I I became aware of Bitches Brew, and that was such an odd, unique experience. And then the the records that kind of came after that, like Live Evil, um, Phyllis the Kilimanjaro, you know, um, Phyllis the Kilimanjaro. I mean, there was in a silent way. I think was before Bitches Brew. If I'm not, if I don't have the chronology, right. totally screwed up. On the corner, like all of those records, and then, um, and then kind of blue, and then somehow, I, I got into this quartet that he had with Herbie, you know, with Herbie Hancock and Ron Carter and Wayne Shorter, and, and Tony Williams was part of this band, and. And I was thought, oh, you know, Tony Williams was super young when he played with Miles. He was like a, he's a prodigy. And then the Tony Williams Lifetime came up because I was also getting into Jack Bruce. And there's a whole thing of uh, rock musicians who were doing, they were improvising in a way. Like there was a whole direction at Santana. Because I came into this whole thing sort of in the 70s. So... I was a kid in the '70s, so when I started, re- I started playing guitar around that time. So I, I was first really turned on to Santana, and Santana always talked about Coltrane and Miles, and I, I heard John McLaughlin, which blew my mind, and and I heard the Mahavishnu Orchestra, and the Mahavishnu, you know, like all of the, in a way, a lot of the jazz fusion from the jazz side, jazz fusion from the is it's connected to Miles Davis like at a, at a hardcore level and and so Tony Williams it's it's it's, it's really interesting because I had a, a a friend of mine in high school named Reggie Sylvester's drummer and he turned he, he was kind of my guide to oh you're you're into cream well you should really hear what Jack Bruce has been doing since cream and mm-hmm. You hear what he did with Carla Bley, and you know, and I just got really turned on, you know, and songs for Taylor, and like all this stuff that like Jack Bruce is so wide ranging, and he played in a version of Lifetime, so and and it's, it's, I don't know if I'm making any sense.
0: No, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know there's a lot of currents to connect. Yeah, with this sometimes thing. Like
1: going because it's 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 kind of it's linear, but it's sort of not linear because. I wasn't there at the beginning of the story or I was too young, I wasn't paying attention. You know what I mean? Like I was kind of at 68, I'm, I was listening to the Beatles and listening to, you know, what, you know, Sly and the Family. I was listening to Motown and, and uh, Aretha Franklin and, and Dionne Warwick. And so um, it, was, it was sort of when the Beatles started going weird and I started focusing kind of more, a little bit more on rock music because I was very much a pop music listener. I mean I was really into music but then I would see like like B.B. King would show up on television like you know there were very few outlets to hear things the FM rock radio FM radio hadn't really come online so much so it was like whatever you heard on WABC was it in a way and um, and then these other sounds started to creep into my consciousness Um, and, and I kind of I would have to say, it would be like, I would say like Bernard Herrmann, you know, his, his, I was a big science fiction fan. I still am a big sci fi fan. So, like, his score for The Day, The Earth Stood Still, like hearing the theremin for the first time, I was like, what is, what is that sound? It was this otherworldly, unearthly sound. Um, I'm a huge Twilight Zone fan. And, you know, how, how much guitar was a part of that score of the theme song. And, at well, least really odd, unplaceable, what is that? That's not, what is, what is that sound? So all of these things kind of led me into, into a place where I was open to hearing new sounds and new approaches in music. And then at a, a certain point in high school, I met a bunch of young musicians who were already engaged in their studies and met a teacher named uh, Dr. Gene Gee Saxophone player who um, went on to play with Sam Rivers, and he 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 led our. Uh, I went to Brooklyn Technical High School, so Brooklyn Tech is not a music school, and uh, it's a it's 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 a school for architecture, for um, design, um, it's a, for chemistry and science, um, but they had after school kind of programs and one of the after school things because there were a number of music of uh, students that were musicians so one of the programs was a jazz workshop and that's where I heard Train for the first time and heard Miles Davis for the first time and heard like like I heard the Mungo Santa Maria version of Cold Sweat so like Dr. Gee would he would play the JB version of Cold Sweat, which we all knew. And then he would play, he would, it was like, you know, he had a record player. Would, and then we'd take that off and he would put on the Mungo Santa Maria version. I remember him playing the Julie Andrews version of My Favorite Things, which I knew because I'd seen the film. I'd seen the film like it was a, it was a Catholic school trip to see it at Radio City Music Hall. And then he put on the Coltrane version of My Favorite Things. And that was when my synapses, that's when my there was a small explosion in my mind. It completely turned me, it turned me upside down. And it was, and I, and, and really, that was a moment that made me want to hear these other approaches, these other sounds. Because Coltrane's version of My Favorite Things is actually not divorced from the Julie Andrews version of My Favorite Things, as opposed to, well, changes to Blow Over. I really felt that he was reinterpreting the lyrics and that he, and he loved the song. And that was a, that was a big deal in, in the sense it was really interpretation. It wasn't like um, he wasn't being snide about it. Or he wasn't being dismissive; he loved it, and that's why the pow—that piece has such power—is because he loves the original, and you know, so on and so forth. So, just moving down the track, I was exposed to a lot of different things. I—I I mean, I this is also at the same time I'm exposed to this. I was I—I I was exposed to the band of gypsies, Jimi Hendrix. So this was all happening at the same time, and and. And that destroyed the other hemisphere of my brain. Like, hearing machine gun at a time, I heard machine gun at a time when the Vietnam War was still happening. And it was so terrifying. Like, it seemed like the war would never end. I mean, of course, you know that wars do end, but when you're a kid and when you know that there's a thing called the draft and that people are going to this war and people are coming back in body bags, and the coming back really messed up. And it seemed like for a lot of us, we were like, this is gonna it's they're gonna get around to us. Like we're gonna <laughs> it was it was irrational. But it was a very real fear when I was sixteen, seventeen years old. Anyway, so I'm being bombarded with 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 that and then hearing hearing really abraxas and then caravanserai and caravanserai is a record that had a massive impact because i was already a fan of santana's because of black magic woman that's that was the way i came in i heard that first then i heard machine gun which was utterly mind-blowing and then the caravanserai thing and then Miles, I was turned on to Miles Davis, I heard Coltrane, and then that led to Eric Dolphy, which, I mean, it was kind of overwhelming. It was an amazing, an amazing period of exposure. And so, uh, Tony Williams was part of this kind of period where I was taking in all of this material that had been building up. See, the thing about it, it's like when you binge watch a show, like people that follow the show from the first episode, they get all the parts of it. Say you ignore a show like, like Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. and or you ignore The Walking Dead, and then at one point you say, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna check out Lost, which actually that's the show I actually and I ignored it, and then suddenly. Like the first episode, of lost the guy gets sucked into the into the plane engine. I was like, "Holy shit!" I've never seen that. You know what I mean? Like, and then I was hooked for the whole ride. I was on for the whole ride, and I, you know, and and so all these things have been a progression, but they've been a progression. You're outside, I was too young. I wasn't exposed. I wasn't exposed to it. It wasn't my musical culture. And then, at the point when we said the guitar began to obsess me, and these other sounds had come into my uh, aesthetic. Then all of a sudden, there was all of this stuff that I wasn't even aware of, that was all there to listen to. And um, it was a pretty explosive time. And then emergency, I mean, was part of that. And, and uh, ego was part of that. And, and ego is where I heard Ted Dunbar, you know, um, playing with, you know, playing on There Comes a Time. Mm-hmm. And then I took some, I took, did did like a, uh, like a semester, a semester or half semester, semester of study at Jazzmobile because Ted Dunbar was a taught guitar at Jazzmobile. And he's just an incredible presence. He's an incredible presence. I mean, he was like a... He had Afro and wore dashiki, <laughs> and he and he was really intense. It was really intense. And um, but I'm jumping around. A- anyway, so I heard emergency and it was incredible. I mean, it was just this driving, it's three dudes making this extraordinary sound. And um, and then Tony Williams was Tony Williams was so such an odd character the music that he was doing was so elliptical was it was not it wasn't like obvious it wasn't direct and then he made these records you know the the old the old bums rush um turn it over and uh i mean these records are works of art they're works of difficult to assimilate art it's not it's not telling you what did he's like following his own course and you could be with it or not with it, but he was about saying what he was saying. And he had just this affinity for guitar and, uh, and I mean, and the choices that he made, I know he played also, he did a prod, some things with Ronnie Montrose. I know he recorded, um, beautiful stuff with, with George Benson and then of course, I mean it all leads ineb- inevitably to Alan Holdsworth, who had been the guitarist for soft machine. And um which is another interesting thing because there's you could say there's jazz rock. See jazz fusion goes in two directions. There's the fusion the jazz rock fusion that's based primarily in jazz, which has a lot of different strains. You know, um, like uh, Cannonball Adderley's music that he was doing at the time, there was a whole R&B fusion that was also going along, and it, and really had a, had its roots in this in the '60s. And there was that fusion, and, and Joe Zawinul was a part of that because Joe Zawinul he wrote "Mercy, Mercy, Mercy," which is like gigantic hit, beautiful song. And then after his tenure with Miles Davis, you know, he started "Weather Report." so there's all these interlocking interlocking things and 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 the other point is that I'm making is there's also a rock a rock jazz fusion primarily based in rock and you know with with sensibilities towards jazz and improvisation so i would say what hendrix was doing um, i mean he was totally improvising based in based in Blues, but based in R&B and blues, and R&B is itself as a, has a fusion of gospel, rhythm and blues, and jazz as part of its sensibility. So jazz is not divorced wholly. I mean, it's its own thing, but it's not wholly divorced from other musics. You hear elements of, of jazz or or say harmonic sophistication in bunches of other musics. Is well, what you hear it in country music, and you certainly hear it in R&B. So um, one of the things about about Tony Williams is that Tony Williams was young, so he was also a fan of the Beatles. He was a fan of pop music because this was a music that would have been very present for him as a young person, as well as being a, a, a kind of wonder kinder of jazz. And he assimilated all these different aesthetics and, and things in his music, and I think that's what's I think misunderstood when you hear a song like I don't know, Million Dollar Legs or something. You know what I mean? Because that's it seems like it may seem like to some people like it's a cop out, but he was always there. He was never not there. He was just a complicated, um, mercurial character in music. He loved rock and roll music. He was a great rock drummer. I mean, he wasn't a guy that pl- played at it. He was about it. And that's the difference, I think, a lot of times. You know, it's it's like, like funk, the feel of funk, the feel of blues, the feel of rock and roll music, the feel of jazz. You have to, if you don't feel that with integrity, like you have to want to be in the situation, or you could play at it, because, oh, this is it, so. And there's a a clear thing that's embedded when you hear music where it's being played at and when it's being played. Somebody that can play something but has uh, a contempt for it, that, it doesn't translate. It contempt, there's a a dangerous side effect of sophistication and uh, a certain kind of uh, didacticism, and one of the bad side effects is is, is is contempt for things that don't measure up to whatever is thought to be. And a lot of people miss things all the time. I think hip hop got missed by by people in R and B and in jazz. They 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 thought, oh, that's kitty, that's kitty shit, you know. And they 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 miss it. They miss what's essentially great about it it's coming from people that are having an actual feeling about things and there's an integrity that they're bringing that those people are bringing to the table this is true of all styles of music someone that's really speaking in that language at whatever level of proficiency there's a feeling of and authenticity is really a, also a charged word but the person that's making that music is feeling the thing they're feeling for real they're not pretending to have that feeling and that's one of the other things is like when somebody's super skilled at something you can pretend to have the feeling and still sound great right so pretending to have the feeling or having ironic distance you know like playing the music at a remove while you're kind of simultaneously sneering and judging it I mean that's part of the reason why we have things that sound good that are not good. They they, they sound it sounds competently played, but the heart's not in it. It's not you know, and um, and this is or and this is a kind of an issue that that has happened with the commingling and fusions and things like that. I mean there has to be an essential feeling need idea. That is actually being expressed, and if it's an imitation of life, it may be cool it's great it's, and and it's it's unassailably great you hear it the- it's being played super well, and it's also empty you know intentionality really counts for a lot, and when you hear music that's that the the persons that's why comedy and music is is uh it's only funny if the if there's love it's only funny you, you know if you, if you if you're actually making fun in it from content- a contemptuous it's not funny it's never funny, like Frank Zappa I mean sometimes his things are juvenile sometimes they're but where he's coming from he's he's genuinely coming from where he's coming from and um Some A lot of it is, is rage, you know? A lot of it is like, you know, Cosmic Debris. You know, it's like... It's a, it's, it's it's like maybe... I mean, there are many great Frank tunes, but Cosmic Debris from Apostrophe is... And it was, I think, the single of that album, right? Or an edited version of it. It's incredible. Inca Rhodes. Inca Rhodes. Um, because his sensibility is, you know you know, <laughs> the world is the world. This is, it, it, he's an atheist. He doesn't believe in any of that. But he takes it on, and he goes, well, did a vehicle come from somewhere out there just to land in the Andes? You know, was it round, and did it have a motor? He asks, like, these, these questions, which are, which are kind of... Um, he, I think it, it's funny because he's really asking the question um and i think going back to to tony williams um it's funny when i think about believe it and 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 a song like mr spock or proto cosmos the idea of he's he's on the one hand He's evoking and speaking to a science, a science fictional idea. But then, when he proto cosmos is actual science is actual, and he's playing with these these ideas and and hearing Ellen Holdsworth who who phrased in this kind of, I mean. I, I mean, even here having heard John McLaughlin and a lot of other great guitar players, he just had a whole it was like hearing somebody who was coming from a completely other place. Like thinking and processing things from a completely other angle. And that's that's the one of the awesome things about about improvisers as auteurs or you know, people who approach their instrument and really in a transcendent Kind of way. I think Hendrix did it. I think Tommy Boland did it. Um, I mean, from for me, I think Jan Ackerman did it. I think Jeff Beck does it. Um, Larry Carlton. Pat Metheny. Pete Cozy. I mean, these are wildly different people who express themselves through the instrument. But there's a certain... Like they may be based in the school, but they're not. They're not. They're not beholden to whatever the school. They're not beholden to it. They're. They're exploring what they're going where they're going, and they're exploring where they're exploring. That's why like, um, Adrian Ballou was so arresting when I first heard him. I said, what the? You know, he because he he figured out a way of playing. But also playing the sounds as well as his playing, because his playing is brilliant. But he also is brilliantly playing the sounds that he's using, playing, playing the effects in a way that, in his own way, the way in a way that Hendrix, you know, he there was no boundaries. His like noise and melody had equal weight. I mean, in in a sense, Hendrix was very harmonic in that way. He wasn't, he you know, the guitar could be roaring like he took roaring feedback and other people did feedback but feedback was an essential complete used it as an essential component of his improvising like sheets of sound which will re- which made Hendrix very relatable to Coltrane to me
0: I'm just blah 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 <laughs> no no I mean this this yeah I, I feel like you're touching on like so much that you know, that that I want to get to, but like, you know, that, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, no, I no, t- no, 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 it was, it was, yeah. I mean, th- this is sort of right, right where I want to be with, with the conversation, but like, yeah. like, so you're, you know, th- that the distinction you're making between like playing something versus like playing at it, which I thought was a really good way of putting it. Like, so you're saying you heard, um, you know, you were hearing Santana and things like that and you were hearing Coltrane. And then when you heard lifetime, you're saying you, you then heard someone who was playing rock kind of quote unquote authentically. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah, they, they, it's their take on it. One thing, one thing that's very interesting is to think about when people intend one thing and the, un- and the unintended occurs. Like the musicians in the Caribbean, my, my background is a Caribbean background. People f- like, my parents are from Montserrat, and that island is very much connected to more connected to so calypso and soca music than it is to reggae music people tend to look at people tend to look at regions and they when they think of the West Indies, they think jamaica and just like every other place region regionalism matters so each island has its own culture and there may be an overlapping umbrella kind of but the specificity. I mean, I mean, we have that in New York City. We have that in we have the New York, right? Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, Manhattan, Staten Island. Um, I mean, we're all New Yorkers, but each borough is its own culture. Each borough is its own its own vibe. And um, anyway, ask
0: a question. <laughs> well. Well, I mean, there's a lot of places we could go go from there, but I guess like, you know, I mean, to jump ahead in time, like, can you describe, you know, the relationship with Jack Bruce and 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 the, and the idea of then actually playing this lifetime music with Spectrum Road, like like that must have been yeah, it's incredible.
1: It's, I think I think well, okay, so with Jack Bruce specifically, it's so, it's so it's so odd that I was a kid that that when I heard. The riff to "Sunshine of Your Love," I mean, it it, it was one of these because I mean, this was an explosive time in pop music where singles records were coming out, and there would just be I mean, One thing would be this: that's incredible, that's amazing, that's insane, that's unbelievable. I mean, it would just be like, and it was all over the map. So, I mean, "White Room" and and uh, and "Sunshine of Your Love," I mean, these are major events, right? They were they really had an impact, and so. For my life to take the, the curious turns and curious turns it's taken to you know one day uh, one of Living Color's managers said, "Man, Jack Bruce is is asking for you to play on this record." I was like, you know, I, you know, I was, you know, I have gone through the looking glass several times in my life where it's like, what, how, what? You know, it's like. I've, I've been incredibly, incredibly fortunate in, in meeting so many people who are he, absolute heroes to me. And so, you know, he invited me to play on his record, A Question of Time, and it was, it was, it was, it was unbelievable. And then when I met him, he was awesome. Jack was a great person. I mean, he was a mu- rock star who was a musician first, like, his love of music came before his rock star status. And he was the kind of man that, um, he was an authentic and real person. Like, it wasn't like a, dealing like a persona. That's like the persona is what you're dealing with and you don't actually meet the, the actual person. Like, he wasn't, he wasn't an act. And, um... And um, he uh, subsequently asked me to play on a couple of other records, and I wound up in a band, the Quico Land Express, um, with uh, El Negro Hernandez, Richie Flores, and Bernie Worrell. Um, I mean, it was incredible. I mean, it was a great, you know, he did a, a few tours, and we toured right when bands were like this was like right after kind of 911 like so like a lot of tours had been canceled and whatnot, and um and, we're, and on one of those tours we were on the bus and i just started asking jack it's like jack so what was it like you know what was it like and he was like "Fern, it was great I mean, it was like the industry was creating itself like like the notion of rock and roll in all caps was It was a thing that they were all he said oh man we did crazy things we all bought castles and found we couldn't heat them (laughs) he said that uh i mean they would do these gigs and they would and they would leave these gigs with duffel bags filled with one dollar bills like there was i mean the whole thing like tour accounting evolved um the sound systems evolved. There was an evolution because this thing was an explosive. It was an explosive thing, and people really were making it up as they went along. And, um, and he talked about knowing Hendrix and and, um, and what, an, what an amazing dude he was and what an amazing guy he was. And uh, and I, and I started asking him about about Tony Williams, and he got. I mean, he said, "Man, he he was. He loved Tony Williams, like." They were, they were very close, and, um, and he talked about you know that he he he, he really wanted to. We um, met Tony, and then he he basically said that he basically abandoned. He had like a solo thing that he was doing, and he basically moved to New York, and he kind of put his own thing on hold um, to 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 play with Tony, and essentially it was kind of financing a bunch of this stuff, you know, because he had rock star money, you know, and um, and they did a lot of gigs, they did gigs, and he said, you know, sometimes people, you know, sometimes people came, sometimes it wasn't, not so much. And, um, you know, he was, uh, he said it was a beautiful time, he said it was a challenging time. And then I, I, uh, I was talking about, and, and, and also the, the passing of Tony Williams really hit him, hit him hard, really hard. And um, and we s- started talking about it. I was like, man, well, what a, how about doing something with his music? How about doing something with him? He was like, huh. And then I, I thought about other people that would be involved, and I immediately thought of Cindy Blackman um, who was a huge? I mean, she was a real Tony acolyte, and uh, and then John Medesky, who I was familiar with from Medesky, Martin and Wood, and I met John when Medeski Martin and Wood had been, you know, playing a lot of CBGBs. It was it was kind of the re, a rebirth, a kind of rebirth, of of rock audiences being exposed to jazz and digging it. Because there was a kind of a thing that was happening with the Knitting Factory and the CBGB's Gallery, which was the which was the venue right next to CBGB's, and they would have these gigs in the basement of the CBGB's Gallery because it was an art gallery. So the the rock club was functioning as the club as the club that it was, and and the other thing is that you know Hilly Crystal. Hilly Crystal was the the manager of the Vanguard. Was a day manager like he was? He worked at the Vanguard, so there's a whole con- connection between his sensibility. In a, in a way, Hilly's sensibility was wide open to things because you know he had uh, Bill Laswell and Material, and he had Curlew, and the Decoding Society played the gig at CBGBs, and so he was. Hilly already had an ear for because he. He, he heard Coltrane. He worked at the, at the Vanguard when Coltrane was doing his thing. So it's it's so as I say, it's a whole interlocking thing. So I had heard John Modesky with Bedeski Martin Wood, and he's just a, such a fabulous organist and and keyboard player, and really just quirky and uh, and really odd. He played you know play, he kind of he played Mellotron, he improvised on Mellotron and things like that. So so then um, we were talking about it and uh and the timing was kind of a nightmare because you know i was doing stuff with living color and 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 jack always had seven irons and seven fires going you know he's doing stuff with an orchestra he's doing stuff with a blues thing he's doing stuff. he had his own big he had a big band you know he had all this stuff but eventually we found a time period and we and we um you know we went to japan we actually no we actually did uh shows at the blue note we did some shows at the Blue note. And they were, they were great. It was really, they were great shows. And uh, we, we'd gone to Japan. And, and we managed to, 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 to set aside a little time to get into the studio. And so he made himself available for it. I mean, that's the thing. He didn't have to. That's, that's the thing about, about the Spectrum Road project that was so incredible. Was that Jack made himself he, he engaged with it, he made himself available for it. And, um, and the connection between the four of us was really special, really, really special, I mean. and, and also because of the feeling we, we have for Tony Williams' music. And um, that was the basic um, idea was we we're going to explore Tony Williams' music. But also, you know, we would improvise, like do these the kind of interstitial moments where that were completely off the cuff. And then it was a funny thing, we, um, and then we threw in politician, <laughs> um, um, Tara said, and that was great. It's like one of my favorite Cream songs, and uh, and that was really great. And then we were playing at um, Yoshi's. Out in Oakland, and uh, Cindy had—I mean, I think they were. She was married, had married Carlos, and uh, and I think they had been married for about a year. And Carlos came to every show. You know what I mean? And so it was just incredible things like here in a band with Jack Bruce, and then Carlos. Who inspired me to play the guitar in the first place is there, and I mean, there's his PRS right there, and there's the boogie amp, and uh, and he jammed with us, and then and then the first night, you know, he played the blues, whatever, and the second night he just broke into "Sunshine of Your Love." <laughs> it was like holy, holy shit! <laughs> it was a freaky, freaky thing, and then the first time that that Carlos sat in. It turned out that that was the first time the two, that Jack and Carlos had ever played together, and I was like, was How that? How's that even possible?" You would think that everybody's played with everyone. It's not true. You know, people's people are on different tracks or whatnot. It was it was it was a a very very special time, and um every gig that we did was was wonderful, and all the time. To have time with Jack Bruce, you know, and, and, and also to get to know his incredible family. I mean I'm I'm including the time of playing with him with Quickoland and and Spectrum Road. And it was you know, it was this crazy idea and 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 basically, you know, Jack cosigned did and went with it and, and and really his participation made it happen. And, you know, we played Coachella, you know, it was wow. What? You know? It was it was I mean it was a very very, very special project, yeah I have a you know i get I get verklempt when I think about it <laughs> I really do
0: yeah i mean it's it's a great record uh, thank you as well um yeah, so I like you know, I wanted to move into you know obviously okay, so another huge you know, drummer, composer is, is obviously Shannon. Yeah. And and, yeah. and it's a very different strain of, you know, quote unquote fusion. Obviously yeah, it's a totally absolutely. different sound. I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, how he came on your radar and, you know, you know, how, how, how that band, you know, started well, to get going.
1: Well this is really really tied to my friendship and my kinship with, with Melvin Gibbs. You know, we um uh we kind of grew up in I grew I was I grew up in Crown Heights and 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 Melvin was grew up in Flatbush. And there's a lot of um a lot of musicians come from both areas, you know, come from around Crown Heights, you know, Miles J. Davis, he's a Crown he's a Crown Heights guy. Um there are a number of folks like Mark Brathway, great bass player, you know, he's 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 a Flatbush guy. I'd started um a band called Point of View, and it was uh, myself, Greg Barrett, uh, and Derek Baines. And Derek, Derek lived in Albany. It was weird. He lived in Mount Vernon. No, Derek Baines was from Mount Vernon. And um, a lot of rehearsals, very few gigs, and uh, and uh, eventually we kind of had to go our separate ways. I mean, it was hard to. It was not sustainable. But we stayed close, and um, and Melvin just called me and said, "Man, you have got to hear this drummer." I'm playing with. I'm playing with this drummer. You gotta hear this music that I'm, I'm doing. And I said, okay. So I, I showed up at a gig. It might've been at Ladies Fort. Or it was down, one of the downtown clubs. And it was mind blowing. It was a big, big man. Charles Breckane was in the band. And uh, Burn Nix, a great, great Burn Nix on guitar. And uh, Munir abdul Fatah was on cello. Uh, Bayard Lancaster was on saxophone. Uh, Yusuf Yancey was on trumpet. Arasto Vasconcelos, Nana Vasconcellos, his brother, was on percussion. It was a big band, and um, it was it was bizarre music. It was, and was kind of relatable. You know, I've been listening to Ornette, to Ornette Coleman's music. It's like, like sort of like like discovering Col- Coltrane led me to Eric Dolphy and that led me to Ornette and um, and the music that that I heard was relatable to sort of like to Ornette's music but it was also it's also funny because it was also had a a kind of a eastern component you know it was very and it was also very bluesy it was it was like sort of like these three strains. It was like the harmonic ornette vibration, a very kind of eastern sensibility, and gut bucket blues. And I was kind of entranced. I was literally enchanted by what I heard because it was. And by that time, I'd been fully on listening to the. Quote unquote avant garde and, you know, Art Ensemble of Chicago and Sun Ra have become part of my aesthetic. And, and my aesthetic was a, just an odd thing because it was like, I love rock and roll. I've never abandoned rock and roll, <laughs> funk. So it was like hearing, hearing Sun Ra, Led Zeppelin, P Funk, you know, I mean, I didn't make a separation between the music. Musics were a sensation to me. Like, anything that struck me as novel, you know, I'm a Yes fan. I was a King Crimson fan. Uh, uh, Focus, Gentle Giant, like, all of these things, which range from kind of, in a sense, 20 Zappa, you know, kind of 20th century classical all the way to full-on Shrieking, <laughs> you know, like blah, you know, like I, I developed an aesthetic and a feeling for all of it, and then I didn't, it, I didn't abandon James Brown and Cool and the Gang, and Sly Stone. I loved anything that I loved in music. I didn't abandon it. Anyway, I I uh and I, I had also heard about this guitar player, James Blood Ulmer, because I I was aware of, of Sonny Sharrock, and um. And um, and Larry Correale was one of the great champions of Sonny Chirac. Like, he, like, Larry Correale is also figures really big time in this thing, because he, he was contemporaneous with Hendrix. Like, he knew, you know, he was around when Hendrix was running. He was kind of a jazz wonderkinder himself as a prodigy. And he acknowledged both, he acknowledged Hendrix as a very important figure and he also acknowledged Sonny Sonny Chirac as an important guitar player in 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 talking about things. You know, one of the things that I really appreciated about Larry Coryell um, is that his openness, as well as as well as his own badassery, his openness to other expressions. So, at this time, there was a series, uh, Jazz at the Public, and. Uh, um, David Murray and Intezaki Shange, the the great poet who who we just passed, she just passed, like uh Dave, David Murray and Ntozake Shange are from Oakland and they and they kind of got together with Joseph Papp and they kinda of engineered this thing where with cats would play at the public theater. And there was this gig that was the um James Blood Omer quartet, which was David Murray, Shan Jackson, and Amin Ali on bass. So I went and 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 bought a ticket and went to the show. it was just mind blowing because that was my first time I saw James Blood Omer live. And it was I mean, I, I didn't even know what I it was nonlinear, it was incredibly powerful. It was also a kind of music that was, um, it was connected to blues, but it wasn't blues. It was connected to, in a way to Ornette's music, but it was different than Ornette's music, and uh, it, was, it was pretty mind blowing. And and Col and um, Shannon was powering the whole thing, and Shannon was outright. So in the first setting, it was hearing his compositions and hearing him in the midst of all of his. He had a large ensemble but hearing him at the public was hearing him just raw. It's just four dudes going to the edge of the plant, going to the edge of the, 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 the proto cosmos. It went all the way in. And I just uh, 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 stepped to Shannon and said, man, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a friend of Melvin's and, and you're incredible. You know, and he just looked at me he's like, what? Ooh, what? And then about a week or two later, Melvin calls me. And says, "Man, um, Shannon wants to hear you play." You know, Shannon. You know, I, I was like, "Wow!" And it was funny because I was I had been in in a um, in a in and B band that was led by this very successful. He became very successful. Um, this uh, keyboard keyboardist and vocalist named uh, Kashif Saleem. And he, he's known mainly as Kashif. And and I had uh, moved away from home. I had an apartment with the drummer in the band. And um, and we were getting ready to do the showcase. And it was a lot of rehearsals, blah, 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 this, that, and the other thing. I was working part-time. And, uh, and the drummer and I both got fired. I used to get into fights with Kashif about rock music. And rock music as a black music, we had real conflict <laughs> um, about that. And uh, and I got the word we had done a showcase and was and and then the anar man that that was there he was I'm down let's do this thing and then he got fired and then I think because uh, she he she said you know, I'm just gonna go in a whole other direction so. I got fired from that gig and I'm going, Oh, okay, so what happens now? And then Melvin called and said, You gotta you know, gotta hear this dude, so hear this 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 uh drummer and I went and I'm blown away and then I I went, I was terrified. It was a kind of audition thing. I was totally in. so we start to play and I was playing my busted up half ass Bill Connors licks, you know. <laughs> and then you know, at the end of it, you know, he was like, uh, "Be here next Tuesday." I was like, "Okay." <laughs> and that was the beginning of my journey with the Decoding Society, you know. And that was, and uh, we recorded I on you, and that that was that was where I got kind of incorporated in this kind of uh, large ensemble, you know, because it was Bernie Nix was also playing guitar. And uh, it was Munir Abdul Fattah, Yusef Yancey, Arasta Vasconcelos, um, uh, Bayard Lancaster. You know, it was, I think, uh, uh um, uh, and uh, Charles Brakeen. Charles Brekeen was also on saxophone, so it was, it was a wild and woolly time, you know. I mean, Yusuf Yancey was played, tru- he, he played trumpet and beautiful trumpet player but he also played theremin so the fact that he you know i think he was the first actual theremin player. because as i said before i'd heard theremin on the day the earth stood still and now this is the first time i actually was in a band with someone who played the theremin so it was a little and then and then Chandler said you know what i can't afford all these people so he, he pretty much uh fired everyone except for me melvin and and uh Bayard lancaster so we had recorded Eye on You, and it was a large ensemble, and Shannon and wanted, wanted to start touring it. It was, it was too much to tour, so then it was a quartet, and it was not enough kind of going on, so then, then the whole idea of getting a sax player, and I went to Catholic school with a, with a kind of prodigy named Zane Massey, and Zane Massey, you know, um, uh his father's Cal Massey who who I mean did arrangements for all you know did all kind of arrangements he was an arranger and and um and uh so Zane came on board and I had I had been playing it was funny I met this bass player I was I was in a band with a po- with a street poet um and uh it was it was a kind of uh Richard Barti. It was a kind of I met him on the D train. And he was a kind of uh street prophet, <laughs> you know, and he would and we'd get up and he would talk about, you know, and he would he would basically just read his poems on the train, you know. And very charming avuncular fellow. And uh and uh and uh, he used to uh Give readings at this little spot up in Harlem, and and I kind of fell into that circle with a uh, bass player named Donald Dixon, great great bassist, named Donald Dixon, and uh, and Donald had a friend uh, named Bruce Johnson, and Bruce, I mean, we hit it off kind of immediately. He's a very warm guy, very funny. Very wry sense of humor and and really original, different player on the bass. Excuse me. He had his own kind of funk, his own sensibility. He was really unique, very unique. And um, and I and when Shannon was talking about oh about people to be involved, he wanted to expand what he was doing. I said, man, you know. And he thought about, man, I would like to do, maybe, I want to two bass players, you know, any bass players. And I said, oh, you should check out my my friend Bruce. And Bruce came down. And it was just one of these things. We started playing, and it was like, it was a the this, this simpatico, and, you know, Shannon just really dug it, dug the sound. And then, um, and I'm I'm trying to think how Henry Scott came into it. Might have been a recommendation from Zane, uh, but Henry Scott is a tremendous trumpet player. And there was there was, it was a, another guy named Dave Gordon who who actually there was it was there were a lot, there was a lot of um, experimentation with the lineup of the Decoding Society. Um, Lee Rossi was an incredible saxophonist. Um, who has a Native American heritage? You know, Lee Rosy was part of um, the band, and he was r- ridiculous. I mean, his he he was a, one of the best at circular breathing. That I mean, ridiculous. You start circular breathing it was like crazy town. Um. Yeah. So for a time, there was Lee Rossi was in the band, and. Uh, it was a, it was killer. It was a, it was a crazy ride. It was. Shannon's is very prolific composer, um, and 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 he had this exactly interesting, I'd say, these three strains. You know, he was a, also his spirituality informed. He was Buddhist, so the eastern um, component was very strong in his music. The Texas blues, you know, he's from Fort Worth, Texas. He was, I mean, he's from, I believe, Ornette's from Fort Worth. And Chan is from the same town. So that kind of Texas blues and the southern vibration was very much in his music. And then the kind of uh, kind of, open-ended, harmonic, free thing one thing that he did was was he wanted when we made iron you the songs are really short he wanted to do these things where he, he play got in got out he said i don't want to do the Train thing i don't want cat playing for two hours you know just kind of boom 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 so he had these like kind of like almost like vignette things when we recorded that first album he was you know he was also he was really into miles davis though he's you know he was into um Miles Davis's presence, his style, the way he carried himself. Now Miles Davis was was very much informed a whole generation of dudes of how they comported themselves. It was a kind of cool, you know, this idea of um, just being a cool, cool pimp, <laughs> pretty much, you know. Um, so that was um, a big part of my life. My young life, you know, the first time I flew on an airplane was the was, uh, first time I went anywhere, you know, first time I really got out of New York, I, I saw other states, the first time I went to Europe, that was all, you know, Shannon, Shannon's uh, sensibility really influenced me a lot, and um, the fact that he was very much an outsider, like, like decoding society the title he was like you know that there's uh everything was meta you know in a way before the internet thing and before memes he was really the coding society was there he was like he's he channing used to say it ain't what you think it is and he said "And, and and that really has stayed with me you know he was also kind of a conspiracy theorist too. He would kind of go into, he would kind of go into the Knights of Malta. <laughs> he would kind of, he would occasionally go down those rabbit holes, you know. But, um, but I mean, I mean his music is stayed with me. Those tunes, the melodies. He had also a very accessible as, as because as, um, also he, it was a very accessible component to his music. Like, I think kind of certain kinds of melodies were very attractive to him, you know, like some of his music since sounds like tin pan alley, or, you know, they're really ditties, you know. So it was it was, it was something. I th- I think that he's super underrated as a composer, very underrated as a drummer. Very much so. And very underrated as a composer.
0: Well, it, it's sort of interesting because you were talking before about these different strains of fusion, like one coming from rock and one coming from jazz, yeah. and like all these other things we've been talking about. You know, whether it's Lifetime or my or Miles or something like yeah. the Decoding Society, it has elements of jazz and rock, but it doesn't sound like any of those things, right? Um, and it's kind of you know those three strains you were describing. But there's also kind of this almost like punk punkiness absolutely. to it. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, there was
1: very much. Well, you know, part of that is. I mean, the era in which it came up and the time, I mean, what New York was like at that time and punk, the whole idea of smashing everything, smashing the edifice of rock and roll because of big rock, of you know, like it became, it started out in this one place and it was creating, itself. it started out in one place and rock was creating itself and it was open like different, different crazy auteurs were kind of making this music that they were making. You know, Pink Floyd was doing its thing. Zeppelin was doing its thing. Like all these different kind of groups were doing, they were all over the place to me, to my ear. And then then it became this idea of, well, it was burgeoning. It was becoming, it was influencing a lot of musicians to pick up instruments and and it was burgeoning, becoming, you know, this massive thing. And then it became super narrow in a weird way to me, you know, it then became the province of one kind of people and not another kind of people and things have become to get categorized and very, you're into this, and you, if you're into this, you can't be into that and it was always that, always, that always bothered me, the tribalism and the, oh, if you're about this and you're about, you know, and punk on a level kind of emerged to kind of, you know, smash all of that. And uh and that was very much a feeling in New York at that time. We're talking about from the late 70s into the into the 80s, certainly into the middle 80s. And you know, that was centered in places like CBGB's, the Mud Club. You know, bands like the Talking Heads were coming up. And uh you know, the things that Brian Eno, would, Eno was doing with the Talking Heads and all of these kind of things were just emerging. And then, you know, like the Bad Brains from DC, you know, and, and the punk thing led ultimately to the beginnings of the hardcore thing. And then bands like Black Flag were coming into the mix. And it's funny because when I think about um, the Intermounting Flame, the Mobbish New record, like that to me... Is is a very punk. It it feels very punk to me. It feels very um. It's 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 passionate. It's rude, unintentionally rude. It's not meant to be rude, you know. But it's a very passionate, very directed kind of music. Um. And in its own way, it's it's very insouciant. You know what I mean, and the sound of it is is very. It's a really raw sounding record, and for me, it's very much a punk jazz record. So it's not completely unrelatable to Nevermind the Bollocks. Here's the Sex Pistols. I mean, if you if you listen to it from a certain sensibility, you can hear the connections. If you approach it from, no, this is this is this that's what i mean the unintended it's like the punkness of the inner mounting flame is an unintended aspect of it it's not intended to be that thing but it you can approach it and hear it from that place um the way that you know believe it is has got a prog component. It's got its own kind of um, alternative component to it. And it depends on, it's it's a part of it is the framing, because there's a certain kind of framing that we have about how we should take things in. But if you let go of the framing and hear the sounds as sounds And make your own correlations to them Then 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 those You know the, Those distinctions kind of fall away And To me <laughs> And that's my own crackpot idea But
0: Well no I mean I, I think it's absolutely The case And I think it's one of the reasons that Early Mahavishnu stands out so much from like later fusion Is because there was that element of like Grit and rawness It's raw I mean yeah. Mahavishnu Is incredibly influ is much more influential than it's
1: given credit for. I mean, I think the effect that Mahavishnu had on the Bad Brains, the effect of Mahavishnu. If you if you heard, I, I actually saw Black Flag with Greg with Greg Ginn, you know what I mean? And it struck me as, oh, this is, I mean, it's not. It this struck me as as a kind of fusion, a kind of super. It, like the influence of Billy Cobham's drumming on hardcore drumming, uh, the influence of those odd time signatures on hardcore, and then su- sudden and and and, and s- the subsequent kind of rock music. That's um. Like you know you can make a line from Mahbushnu to Meshuga. I, I mean you you could draw a line directly from obviously to Michigan. You could draw a line, you know, from Weather Report to Periphery. You you you, you can make those connections. Like, th- that sensibility, you know, believe it. You know, like Van Halen was a huge fan of Alan Holdsworth. And Alan Holdsworth had a massive effect on guitar playing, you know, in, in metal and hard rock. Um, because dudes are like, when somebody poses a technical challenge. There's a part of the dude brain that's like, you know, I, I must answer this provocation with one of my own. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's very much like that. And the unintended consequence of that, and some of the music is, 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 is going to be fantastic, some of it's going to be whack, you know. But the influence of it is undeniable. And um, like a song like The Dance of Maya you know it completely' influenced a lot of metal you know the metal and proto metal people um, big time, you know I mean it certainly influenced it certainly influenced think of the influence that it had on Jeff Beck, like Jeff Beck, like Jeff Beck working with Jan Hammer is a direct outgrowth of that exposure. you know Jan Hammer, like, you listen to Jeff Beck's phrasing, Jan Hammer the Way he played the mini move, the way he played his leads, his kind of phrasing so attracted Jeff Beck or so affect, affected him. You start to hear that kind of influence on a, a kind of cross instrumental influence on certainly on the kind of improvising that Jeff Beck was doing at that time. And Jeff Beck is a, he's a huge influencer, so when somebody Who's an influencer is influenced, then it then that influence spreads itself down the line. Down the line, I, I mean, at this juncture, I want to bring up Tommy Bolin because Tommy Bolin is. Tr- I mean, what an incredible loss! I mean, because Tommy Bolin, he was and he was very much like Hendrix in that he was not intimidated by the label jazz, like. He was gonna play something, like he, that's the feeling I got from listening to Spectrum. It's like he was just gonna do what he was doing, and certainly that was also part of what made Hendrix so interesting to Miles Davis. Because I think Miles heard in Hendrix, oh, he's just you he don't care about none of these labels. He's gonna play, and that's the that, and that's the the part of the thing that makes him. That made a Hendrix or a Tom Bowling in those contexts very interesting. Because they weren't like, okay, I gotta play you know, they weren't thinking, oh, I need to play this kind of material over those courts. They're gonna play whatever they hear. Regardless of whether right or wrong, quote unquote. They're gonna play. This is one of the things that I think that Larry Coryell appreciated about Hendrix as well. You know, that sense of I'm I'm gonna I'm approaching this from where i am not where i want to be or where i should be i'm doing what i'm doing and the i'm doing what i'm doing thing is something that's very it's a very dynamic it's 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 a very dynamic aspect of what the of their work
0: mm. and yeah which, which would obviously apply to someone like shannon because he's not trying to be billy cobham or something like that you know it's almost like it's almost like some kind of opposite end of the spectrum which Ties into that punk thing we were talking about. You, you know,
1: this this is the thing, and part of the thing is part part of the thing is that people were reacting. Well, I ain't doing that. I get it. You know, like a lot of the things that we love, that are great, are the outgrowth of competitions, and 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 uh, people that get a bug up their butt about this or that, and they they're gonna act it out on their instrument, and whatever that meant for them. Was a kind of uh, net benefit for us, you know. So that's that's like all of the great R&B music. The music, you know, all that music is regional music. That's music from Oakland. That's music from Philly. That's music from Detroit. That's music from Florida. That's music from Chicago. And the thing to remember is. These are all artists. They're all trying to make it happen for themselves. So they're they're in co- literally in competition with each other. Who could be the most interesting? Who could have the most hooks? Who could have the coolest this or that happening? And in the aggregate, it's 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 because of these independent labels and these people competing. And you know, I can do a slicker thing. Oh, you doing that? You know, I'm gonna do this. And the listener got the benefit of just these really talented people trying to get their attention. Everyone was trying to get the, the audience's attention. And just, it became this wonderful, uh, this content, a contentious, imagine a, a, bouquet, a bouquet of flowers all in contention. That's what we, that was the benefit for, for, for the listener.
0: And, um, got nothing <laughs> well yeah i mean i guess i guess it's it's really interesting to think about coming from that place where you were describing the decoding society having all these different influences and taking in you know uh james blood omer taking in chirac having all of the zeppelin and the and the cream and everything like I, i'm kind of curious about these initial ideas about coming out of that like the initial ideas of living color like what what was it was the idea to take all that stuff and put it together or, or like what was the initial like concept for you do, then doing your own thing after all these
1: well things. you know it was very much i think it's very, it was very much kind of parallel to if you think about miles davis and so he had herbie hancock he had john McLaughlin was in his band chick korea was in his band like all of these joe zaron was in his group um like all these tremendous players and then you hear the music that they did, like the initial records and things that they did after, you hear the stamp of Miles Davis, like you hear the stamp of Miles Davis in in Herbie's music, Sextant. The early weather report records are I Sing the Body Electric. I mean that I, I sing the body electric is very much an even sweet nighter, you know, those records are very still tied to Miles Davis. It's, it's like they break, really break with Miles when you get to Mysterious Traveler. It's at that point that they, they're, they're it's, it's own, I mean, it's in the background, but it's its own thing. When you get to Headhunters, you know, the influence of Miles Davis, I mean, of course it's always there, but they, they've moved on to make, to do their own thing. So when I first was playing, after playing with Shannon, I mean, it was all instrumental and was very much relatable to the things I did with the Decoding Society. And then I, basically, the break with that was the song Funny Vibe. Funny Vibe from Vivid is the actual, really, first Living Colors song. Um, Even the song I Want to Know was from a previous, you know, I I, I was in a band with... um, uh, uh, with Raymond Jones, a keyboard player, who he played on Good Times. He played the Rhodes part in Good Times, and and I went to high school with him. And he turned me on to music like Peter Gabriel and XTC, and you know he turned me on to a lot of music. And um, but that song is kind of a holdover from a previous project. But but Funny Pop is the song that. St- Started to define li- the living color style, and that was basically I was enraged. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I went into a department store. I got into an elevator. I was in a great mood. I was for something. I, I was in a good mood, and I got into an elevator. And this li- old white lady saw me and just clutched her handbag, and I was like, I was like, what, <laughs> you know? And I was just her reaction to me was, I was, I was it's, nothing could have been further. Whatever fear she had. I mean, had nothing to do with me, but it made me mad, and that's where funny vibe came from. You know, it's basically I'm not going to rob you, I'm not going to beat you. You know, and that was, but that was the tune that. And then later, when I, when uh, Cory Glover, when I got together with Corey Glover and we wrote Middleman together, you know, and then it became, then it started to emerge. But, you know, Living Color, at first it was Vernon Reed Trio, then it was Vernon Reed's Living Color, and it was all because my framing was having been in a ba- I was in Shannon's band for six years. So his sensibility, even though rock was a part of my mindset the whole time, I have been fully engaged in this composer, the leader, this his music, and the way he did things. So I coming out i kind of was i was still in that framework and then i had to move away from that framework and basically uh what was crucial what was very crucial was cbgb's as as the arena in which it was the it was the proof it was the laboratory or was the ground in which all of those changes happened like you know Killy just kept booking the project, kept booking the band as it evolved, and we played in a lot of different places. We played at the old Lone Star Cafe, played at Tramps, played at Danceteria. But but CBGB's was the the place where the band really developed. You know, I give I give that place. I mean, Living Color wouldn't have happened without that 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 place, and 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 certainly Killy Crystal. You know, um, you know. I mean, he was the one that was booking bands that other places wouldn't
0: book. Well, I I have a couple questions about that. So you were talking about sort of this early phase of it, and I had seen, you know, different places. There's listings of kind of some people you were playing with early on in that group, yeah. and a lot of these people are you know who we know as jazz musicians. Like I, I saw Ferona Kalafas on there, Jerry uh-huh. Allen, people Jerry like that. Allen, yeah. So so was. Was there were there things happening under the umbrella of Living Color that were sort of more of a jazz thing? Well,
1: you, well, it was it was kind of like I was connected to these just wonderful people, and um, I mean this is also right around the time of the beginning of the Black Rock Coalition, and um, and Mel, you know, and, and then Melvin. It's funny because Melvin and I have both left. The other thing is Melvin and I both played in in defunct. So. That was another part of the Joe Bowie's project, Joe Bowie's band defunct, and I was one of like five alternate guitar players. There was like a bunch of different cats that knew the tunes and would do the gig, and um, and and Melvin was a part of both of those bands, and so when both of our tenures ended with Shannon, um, it was interesting that both of you know both of our things. Went in a rock direction, like he started his band I and I um, with his with his partner D.K. Dyson, and, and uh, that included like uh, like guitar player Andre LaSalle, who was somebody I knew from the Brooklyn Runnins, you know, and his background is Trinidadian, and he's a tremendous guitar player in his own right, and uh, and in fact, Melvin I and I was the only other group. It was the first band, like rock band, to have a DJ as a regular member. Like, the only other thing that was happening was the Rocket Band, Herbie's Rocket Band, with, D, with, 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 with DXT. Um, DXT was his DJ. But as, as far as a rock thing, because it was like, in terms of DJs being like, there was a band from Pieces of a Dream, um. Really, in I and I, that had you know, and 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 it was actually really controversial. I remember uh, the keyboard player from point of view, the the fusion band that I had started. Derek Baines was in I and I, and he found it really difficult to be in a band with the DJ because he said the guy's not a musician, and he, re- you know, he had really had this defined idea, and. Turntablism was very confrontational for a lot of musicians. Like, like for them, the idea of an app- appliance being considered a musical instrument was anathema. They couldn't get wrap their head around it. Whereas t- those, there were those of us that saw turntablism as almost like a manifestation of, of Duchamp's ideas. Like the the uh, Marcel Duchamp, the French artist and, and art theoretician, who talked about the everyday object and take uh, elevating the everyday object and saying, well, because it's art, because I say it's the whole idea of conceptual art really starts with Marcel Duchamp and with the Surrealists. So, turn the turntable as an instrument. Was I was one hundred percent with it because I I thought of it, and I and I think Melvin actually got got it as well because we're both art, you know I'm connected to art stuff too, and I got it more more as a as as that, and the other thing too, the unintention is like the turntablists aren't thinking about Duchamp, and it made it in that way, the turntable as instrument makes it a perfect. Expression of Duchamp's ideas because the the turntablists are not referring to Duchamp. It's a hundred percent organic, and it's also an expression of, you know, twentieth century twentieth century industrialism. Kind of, again, this whole idea of the the the, unintended—the unintended consequences are mainly seen as negative, but. The turntable as instrument is a positive unintended consequence. So, you know, Melvin's band was just kicking it. You know, great, great band. And uh, and we were all just having, you know, a rough time getting people to come out and what have you. And I started thinking, what's going on? You know, why is it so hard to get gigs? Why is, you know, why is it such a an uphill climb to to just accept what we're doing? as opposed to oh you're trying to be white you're trying to do this you're trying to do that and i rejected all i rejected the premise i reject that as a premise i don't i never bought that I've, I've never got that and so that was the beginning of the of the of the the black rock idea and it was interesting to think about what was going on the west coast which that was manifested as the Afro Punk idea. People different kind coming. People come from different places, having the same sort of idea. Like you know, what does it mean to be black? Why is it? Uh, why is it an issue or a problem? What is that about? So all that was happening like in the middle '80s, and that was also be- the beginning of, in a weird, in a weird way. You know, people talk about golden ages all the time, but you know, like. A lot of the f- great fusion stuff, we saw it at the bottom line. That was, that was the club. You know, that was, you know, like, seen so many great ensembles, you know, um, and uh, saw Cobham there many times, you know, saw Tony Williams there, saw Alan Holdsworth there, saw, you know, uh, uh, Brian Auger. Brian Auger had a great band the Oblivion Express yeah you know and um, I mean New York was such a place for live music um, and it's very um, because of the fact that big money the real estate the rents and things like that you know just kind of smashed all of it smashed it all to pieces it's really it's very sad
0: one of the things I want to talk about, like we, you know, we've been sort of coming coming at this a little bit from the jazz side, fusion things like that. Like obviously, you know, one of the most striking things about early Living Color and, and all of it is, is is the heaviness of it. Is oh, is, yeah. is sort of the the metal the, the that. Absolutely. So I'm I'm wondering if you can just talk to me about you know your background in in I guess quote unquote metal and how that made its well, way well, into that well, music. That, I mean
1: that was I mean that actually like I could say it starts starts with Hendrix and then goes into hearing Sabbath, and see, also, part of it was exposure on television, too, because like, like I saw things like Sabbath and Led Zeppelin on television, mm-hmm. as well as hearing the records, and and once, and also, it was radio, or, sorry, radio <laughs> okay, stations. <yeah. laughs> well, the thing is, we had amazing radio in, um, in New York, so, WNEW was the premier rock station, and 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 you heard of just a variety of music from from that station. You know, WLS was primarily R and B black music, but occasionally you would hear really interesting music from from that side. Also, I'm, I'm also I'm in high school. I met, you know, it's the first time I heard that the Almond the Brothers. So you know, that's not metal, but. It's the first time I heard this these musics. The first time I, I I was exposed to bands like Yes, and and so on and so forth. And then, it's funny at a certain time period when I was when uh, I was exposed to the Bad Brains. I mean, that's also the when I heard Master of Puppets, and Master of Puppets is a game changing record. You know, it's because it was it was much younger. It wasn't Sabbath. It was a much younger and much heavier sound. Um, and then, I, and when that was coming out, then there was like, at you know, there were hardcore matinées, and there was metal. They would have metal um, uh, nights at Irving Plaza. Um, I was exposed to the band Prong. And and that record, you know, and and that record beg to differ was just are you are you serious? It's incredible. I mean, just the sound of it. Um, that was a that was a kind of a big deal. And uh, so that's kind of where I started, you know, started hearing. And also I had uh people in my life who were really into metal. You know, I was in a in a band early on called. GC's Express, which is exactly what you would imagine. It's funky. But the other guitar player was Hassan Niels, and Hassan was all about it. And you know, one of the other bands that was big, that was a huge fan of was Deep Purple Um, and Richie Blackmore. And the, the record Live in Japan is like ridiculous. It's ridiculous. You know, I'm just, so. That that sound, um, the power and the glory, if you will, kind of came into my aesthetic. So, so it was a kind of collision, like I said. So on the one hand, I'm hearing, I'm listening to Ornette Coleman, and I, and I then I, then I, then
0: I heard Anthrax,
1: <laughs> and I was like, wow, it's great.
0: So, so did you did you feel like? Were you comfortable saying, you know, we're, we're a metal we're a metal band? Is that is that is that what you were thinking? Like with Living Color, like 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 did you did you align with that? Well, yeah, I mean, I would say I would say that we were a combination
1: of metal and hard rock, definitely. So metal was metal, absolutely. I was cool with it, but we were also, but, but what we what we were was a combination of there were aspects of metal, hard rock, and punk we kind of fused with this also awesome jazz sensibility. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I I'm 100% good with metal being considered an aspect of our sound. But it was a, it's an aspect the same way that like the sound of Sly Stone Sly Stone what Sly Stone did informed who we who we, who what we became just like a part of what the sound of what, you know, Kirk Hammett, you know, Metallica did, became an aspect, the way the Bad Brains, I mean, they are definitely tunes I could point to, oh yeah, that was influenced by like uh, like desperate people, like the Bridge of Desperate People, is like Rush, is totally influenced that, I mean, um, when I think of this little pig from Stain, Metallica, there's an aspect of Metallica that was an influence. Influ- I, I mean, I wasn't thinking of it consciously, but I would go around and say, oh, yeah, that was a, a vibe of, the Metallica vibe was a part of what influenced that sound. Uh, the song Time's Up, I mean, Bad Brains, this is all, you know. the influence of Bad Brains is all over Time's Up. But, you know, I'm not thinking about it. You know, at the time, I could say that the mighty Sparrow is influenced Glamour Boys, and that's also true. You know, so.
0: And 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 were the other did the other members were they coming from a similar place of having all this stuff like jazz funk metal hard rock? Were they did they all have the same breadth of absolutely influences? Absolutely, yeah. and
1: and it, and it's interesting because when I consider like um, Corey Glover as a vocalist, I mean there's there's equal there's like Equal parts, uh, Robert Plant and James Brown, in what Corey Glover does. I mean, he brings, you know, Jackie Will, you know, he brings Jackie Wilson and Ozzy into the same house, and that—that's the thing about what he does. That's—that's that's how it even works. Is that he spans this incredible space you know and you know there's the you know the holy roller is a comp- is a component as any good metal singer will have that as something is that that also the fire and brimstone is is a necessary component I think um, and I found with with all of the people that have been part of living color that they have just as breadth of um, experience, but also a, an aesthetic breadth. Breadth, You know, it's like Elvin Jones and John Bonham come together in Blue Calhoun. Um, you know, I think about like all the, all the base that was covered by Doug Wimbish inside of um, things he did with the Sugar Hill Gang like, all the bass that was covered by Muzz Skillings, you know, when we were, you know, writing Cult of Personality, you know, out in at, in a loft in Bushwick. you know, So that all of those, you know, everyone that's been a part of it is, you know, that's been their availability to the whole thing. I mean, that's how it works. It doesn't work without it. I mean, at the same time, you know, like people say, Well, you're all over the place but when I think about the influence of the Beatles, by the time you get to the White Album, the White Album is bananas. It's completely, it's completely bananas. they're all over the place, but it but it's the Beatles. I mean it's revolution number nine. It's like revolution, nine. it's like a tape experiment. And it's like nine minutes long. And they did that. You know what I mean? So for me it's it's also the idea, okay, so the Beatles is, I want to hold your hand, but it's also Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. And that's why it was possible for, you know, Vivid to have broken hearts and cult of personality and Memories Can't Wait. You know, and it's, and it's very much a, a kind of, uh, almost an audio diary of what it was like to be in New York. Because all of these different things are are part of it. And then a lot of things that we talked about are still current. The funny vibe is still has currency. Open Letter to a Landlord has more, I mean, in a lot of ways has more currency than it did then. Time's up, you know. The things that we kind of had as, as musical conversations, they, they still have a resonant, and some of that, even disturbingly so, like something like Postman, is, is really, you know, like the idea of all oh, talking about a mass killing, but from the point of view of the shooter and really kind of taking that on and then seeing all the horrible things that have happened since that song was written. That's a weird. It's a. It's kind of a. Sometimes I look around at it and it goes a little bit. It's a little bit weird to say. Well, yeah, man. Funny vibe should be. You know. Something we're nostalgic about, or dated, or not nostalgic about, but simply something that's not current. But it is. It's more. It's a. It's a thing we're really grappling with. We're grappling with these things. And really, the and really the, the having a. Uh, the power chord is maybe the only thing to, the only sound that adequately contains the rage and the frustration. The the sound, that heavy sound, is the only thing that, it's, it, you know, I mean, you, sure, there are a bunch of other sounds you can make, but the power chord, the sound of that heavy sound how do you talk about these subjects? How do you, you know, how do you, what's the sound, the proper sound to accompany that? And I come back to it. I say, Oh yeah, that sound. The Kerrang. That kind of Kerrang is it. I mean, other things are cool. But you know, a sound like go away or Ouslander, that sound is the only sound to me that adequately
0: undergirds What's what's happening? Yeah, I mean, and and in a way, it's interesting that, you know, with that said, there there are you know relatively few metal bands expressing those kinds of things with that sound.
1: Well, you know, I mean, this. I actually think that there are, are 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 quite a few. I mean, the thing is, you can. The thing about music, you can talk about whatever you want to. I mean, it, you know, every it's 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 okay to be like well, if you if you just want to talk about girls, girls, girls. I, I'm not, I'm not mad at that, right? But it's really about you know, whatever's going on. I mean, Rage Against the Machine, um, you know they they kind you know they have said said the things that they're saying you know, they, that they've said and again you know that sound is is the only sound that gets at it um i i think about so much of what soundgarden um took on you know like we're going to go back and listen to chris cornell and chris cornell that sound because he's also a badass guitar player too you know and the sound that him and kim Thay-El, you know the you know the heaviness of you know, fell on black days. I mean, what else? What else gets at it? I mean, and not, I mean, I mean. To me, um, it's the real. I mean, he talked about. I mean, he was telling. He was telling us about his pain. Again and again and again and again. You know, big time, and um, Rusty Cage. Jesus Christ pose, you know all those things, you know. So the conversation is the whole idea about what it should and shouldn't be in music is is a really interesting one because you know if 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 you don't have the idea that it should be entertaining without you don't want to disturb the audience, I go fuck that. Like whatever, you know. I mean, if, if if your aesthetic is an entertaining aesthetic, I'm not mad at that. I like to be entertained like anybody else. But if you're a person that has anxiety about the situation in the world, and you and and your anxieties may actually show up in tunes, great. And that's what you should. That's what you should be talking about. You should talk about whatever it is that can have mu- that, that music comes out of. The idea that music should be this or should function like that is oppressive to me like music should only be like the idea that politics or social things shouldn't be in music you know what if the tune that if if the music doesn't function the music doesn't function it, it doesn't matter you could have all the it's not about political correctness in that sense you know what I mean if the tune is whack it's whack you know you could be, but if if the music comes alive inside of whatever you're saying whatever you want to say is valid. You know, if you want to talk about Stonehenge, and you know what I mean, if that's your thing, you know what I mean, then I ain't, I'm not mad at it. It's not like you should be, quote unquote, socially aware. But if you're hiding who you are, because, I mean, that's that's part of the thing, you know, like some people are very tuned to what the audience, quote unquote, wants, and that's their skill. If that's your thing, then do that. It's fine. I mean, people get mad and they say this is irrelevant or that's not this or it's not that. It's like no, it's like it's not that. Does that's not what it is? It's like if you're good at something, right? You're good at being trifling. Be trifling. That's who you are. That's who you. Are. If if your thing, that's why I, you know I like Casey and the Sunshine Band. Right, Casey and Sunshine That's the way Uh-huh, uh-huh I like it It doesn't mean anything And it's perfect And it's It's perfectly realized In its non-meaning Right So I love that I have no problem with that Now If you're trying To come up with something That's meaningless And it fails It's because it's not It's not pure And it's not, it's not It doesn't really reflect you know, you're attempting to make a thing happen, and in your attempt to make the thing happen, your attempt to entertain, you're not entertaining. Someone that's entertaining will be entertaining. That's fine. If you if you're a curmudgeon, then then be a curmudgeon. If you can set your curmudgeonliness to music, and really express that, I have no problem with it, because you're that. That's who you are. You you know you're. I don't like people, and you set that to music. I so, said, man, I listened to you and said, so, man, you really don't like people. Like, you know what I hear? You know, if you're somebody that actually loves people and pretends to not like people, that's whack. You're not being to, dude, you're not, that, you're not that guy. You're not a mean person. Why are you doing that? That's not you, right? If you are someone that wants to talk about blood and fury and whatnot, and that's your shit, I got no problem with that. But if you're somebody, like the idea that hiding, hiding... Or it's like, man, I'm gonna craft this thing that's a thing. It's 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 jive, and craft is a part of it. But you know, like, like, like one of my favorite lyricists is Hal David. I mean, that dude. I mean, anyone who had a heart, or do you know the way to San Jose, right? It's incredible. It's incredible. I don't. I mean, and of course he's a great craftsman, blah blah. blah but I mean, that dude is hurting. you know a house is not a home that's the sound of someone that's hurting that that actually was able to put that you know what I mean or or Jimmy Webb you know Wichita lineman right that shit is you know that is a lonely guy (laughs) you know so if you can if you can make that happen you know it's like you know but that to me is like war pigs war pigs is it, it perfectly says what it says you know and that's the and that's that's what makes it work or not work. What makes it work or not work is: does it say the thing it's supposed to say? You know, is it saying the thing that it's saying? You know, mindless, quote unquote, or deep? You know, I mean, mindlessness doesn't bother me as long as it's mindless. If it was if it's if it's mindlessness, but it's kind of archly not mindless. Well, that can work or not work, right? Like. And that's what I say about can, that's that's why I, I, like super clever people who are manipulative, and you know, I mean that's the other thing too. Like rock and roll has is 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 also a, a dumping ground of dysfunction, <laughs> various types of dysfunctions, misogyny, racism, whatever. You know, that comes into the mix as well. Uh I don't know if as long as it works, I may I may take issue with it. I may not like it, and that's okay. But but whether it works as music is a separate thing from whether or not I like it or whether or not I approve of it. It's not about that. That's that's part of the thing. Because those those considerations they also boomerang back, right? Because on one hand the disapproval of the tattooed and the long-haired, is, you know, there's that society disapproves, right? But then there's the disapproval of the of the tattooed and the long-haired, the things that they don't like, whatever that is,
0: mm-hmm. you
1: know. That's why that's why I love Charlie Benanti, and he knows why. <laughs> well, what
0: what what can you say about that specifically?
1: <laughs> Charlie Benanti is one of the most has one of the most open and broad-ranging aesthetics of anyone I've met in this business. He's, he, one thing I I love about Charlie Benanti from Anthrax, the drummer for Anthrax, is that he is about the things he likes. You know, like, we're on tour with them, and, uh, and, uh, I was backstage, I was on the bus, and on the guy I remember, I was, and he was listening to like the Joshua Tree. And he, I was like, what? He said, I fucking love you too. And I was like, oh, that's, you're my dude, right? Like he, the fact that he's he's unapologetic about the things that he he would be somebody that's great for this. Mm. He's definitely talked, he definitely should talk to Charlie Benanti because you know, he, he can play, he can play, you know, he can play almost every, Charlie can play almost every King's X tune on guitar. <laughs> Charlie's, Charlie's a deep dude. And, and people like that who I've met on my own journey, I so appreciate them. Like they do what they do, but they're also, who they are is much more than the sum of the parts you see. I dig that. I take that. When it comes into like um what I don't dig is is the folks that, you know, folks that denigrate other folks because they don't get it or they don't, you know. I I don't care about that shit. I, I, I'll I'll never co-sign that. I mean, I'll never co-sign you I mean, of course, the things you don't like, you don't like whatever. I get it. Like but The idea of saying, oh, someone sucks because they do something that I don't approve, I don't, it's not about anything aesthetic, it's just like, oh, that, I don't, you know what I mean? Like, uh, like being against country music, so I don't care, but that's jive. It's an incredible musicianship, and and incredible tunes, and incredible musicianship, and I'm not pandering when I say that, it's my actual feeling, and, um, what what bothers me is when people assess something like the avant-garde and and they just make a blanket statement or they don't get it they don't take they don't take the time or you know it's fine if you know they don't have the aesthetic and it's okay they don't get it because it just sounds like noise. It's, oh yeah okay but it's it's a noise that's coming from a place
0: you know a lot of the stuff you're describing about okay so so being a being a band who you know sort of speaks their mind you know politically and socially and also brings in all those influences without really you know feeling the need to like explain or apologize it's funny to think about that happening in like 88 because so much of that stuff being in vogue was really more like 92 93 like you're saying with rage you know the sort of lollapalooza bands you know whether it's you know uh, Jane's, Tool or Jane's Addiction or these bands, yeah. like that—that like that whole type of a, approach, where it was like, yes, there was metal, but there was also all this other stuff, and the lines yeah. were very blurred. And you know, even Fishbone, and things like that. Yeah. It, it it just seems like you know this has probably been, I'm sure, said a million times with Living Color, but it's maybe like you know five years before that became such a right. accepted thing, right? You know, well, par- partly because um we weren't
1: paying attention. We weren't paying attention to the thing we weren't supposed to do. I mean that's that's the thing. We weren't we weren't paying any heed, you know, like because oh you shouldn't be doing that, or you shouldn't, or we didn't pay any we didn't pay it any mind. We didn't we didn't pay it any mind. We ignored that. It's like you know we just ignored that. It's like um like uh, the Beatles ignored the class distinctions, you know what I mean? They ignored the fact that they were from, they were working class guys from working class town. And the class thing is massive. And they just ignored that to make their music. You know, they went went to Germany to do it. They went wherever they had to go. They did what they had to do. And they changed the world because of it. I mean, if you let the, you're to or you're not fill in the blank to do fill in the blank you're too fill in the blank or you're not filling the blank to do if you, whatever that is then that's what's controlling what you do. You're too old, you're too fat, you're too this color, you're not that color, you're not that, boom, boom, boom. All of those things. You're too young, you're too whatever. If you pay attention to it then that's defining what you, that's, that's telling you what you're going to do. You're too young for this and you say, oh yeah, I'm too young then you're not going to do it, right? Um, we just didn't pay it any mind, we didn't, pay, didn't pay it any mind. We were too busy making the music we were making. We were too busy trying to do what, doing what we were doing. Because also, you know, we weren't, we, the other things that Living Color wasn't just political. I mean, I, it was also an, um, um, talking about emotional, emotional things as well. I mean, it's the only way it would work is the, the balance between the personal and the political. The personal is the political I mean the only way it would work, certainly for certainly for certainly for cory Cory Glover our lead vocalist it would only work if um if the heart and the head were combined if it's all if it's all head you know i can I can be pretty you know there's certain things that that he just said nah no, and uh, you know cause it would be like a head trip type of thing and it wouldn't if it didn't work on a at a visceral level and he's not going to be able to deliver it. He's not, you know, he's not going to be able to sing it. And um and as far as being ahead of the curve, well, you know, in in a weird way when I think about bands, my own thinking about it is like what I liked about Sabbath, Zeppelin, Yes, Talking Heads, you know, Cool in the Gang when they were funky, <laughs> James Brown, Otis Redding. So all of these people were doing what they were doing, regardless of whatever was else going around them. They transcend. They transcend. You know, like having a genre. And genres, genres are great because genres are language. But everyone that's great in a genre transcends it. John Lee Hooker. Is, is a blues artist but he transcends the blues he does he does what he does you know sometimes his blues are you know kind of blue you know one four five blues sometimes his blues in one chord and he's just saying, saying his story just telling his story he was a he, you know Charlie Hooker was a griot he was like an african storyteller you was saying what he's saying you know what uh, tom waits right is a total opposite example for me because tom waits really used to get on my nerves you know like like around the time of emotional weather report, it was like, oh, dude. Ugh. And then all of a sudden, right around Bone Machine, all of a sudden this it, it became it was like, like I would always say, the mask became his face. Like he wore the mask long enough that he there was no mask anymore, and he just, I mean, like uh, Captain Beefheart, that dude is Beefheart was Beefheart, he wasn't. You know what I mean? There was no, he was, he was just there. And as opposed to Bowie, was a chameleon, you know. He was the thin white Duke, and he was the man that fell to earth. Um, he was Ziggy Stardust. And so I was able to follow him through those changes because, you know, all those personas as whatever, you know, he was doing, he was doing it. At the time he was you know he was he embodied whatever mask he was wearing at the time, but that is, again that only works for you know like that only that only works if that if that is actually what's happening like it like like oh, we're gonna be a political band, it's like are you, yeah that's the worst right i mean if you again, if you have that thing. You're talking about the thing that you're talking about, then it happens. If you're saying we're going to do fill in the blankets. You know, unless something unintended happens that's like, what? You were trying to do what? (laughs) But you wound up doing, you know. And uh I mean I mean, if anything, we kind of Living Color kinda was like you know saying that it's possible like the only thing that kept me going I mean a lot of times I heard um, Prince Little Red Corvette and I was at a really a point where this is just not gonna happen it's just it's just it's really it was like going uphill and then hearing Little Red Corvette was like holy shit oh, you know just the idea that it could happen that's possible to do it and um, and I'd like to think that Living Colors functioned in that way for people we have no idea like but hearing cult of personality come on the radio seeing that video you know i like to think that people saw that and went man it's possible it's you know just even even if they didn't like the band you know yeah it's possible i can do be better than that guy <laughs> you know whatever um and that's the thing, cause you know the the artists of the past, other artists, just, they were that for me. Like Bad Brains was like, holy shit, you know, I mean that, that was eye against the eye. It was, a, it was a massive record. All oh, the roar, the record, you know, Fearless Vampire Killers, you know, they, had, they they were a huge deal for us. And then you know when Fishbone, Voices of Industry, when the Voices of Industry video came, was like, wow and that's the that's the real value of it, and now you know the other people going in other directions with their music and um the idea that we're part of that fabric you know we you know the whole idea of being part of rock being rock and roll is that we're part of something that's great we're we're part of something that's great. However, we got there. However, we did that, and that's the thing that that's just very powerful. That you know, being a, a rock, hard rock, metal, funky, free jazz band. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, all those people that put in, and and some of them were misunderstood. You know, like to me, like Eric Dolphy. I mean, what an incredible, incredible artist. Incredible. You know, in in a lot of ways, you know. And I have to mention someone at this juncture. You know, uh, I was talking about Alan Holdsworth, but there was a guitar player in in our neighborhood in Brooklyn named Arthur Arthur Rames. Arthur Rames... I mean, words even fail to describe it. But it was it was funny. He played in such a way. Like when I first I saw Arthur, he was playing with Miles J. Davis in a battle of the bands at my high school, and he played like Johnny like Johnny Winter, right? Then the next time I saw him, he was playing like John McLaughlin, like ridiculous like hyper John McLaughlin. And, uh, like the next time I heard him play, he was playing some shit that I was like, I didn't know what to think about what he was doing. And it wasn't until I heard Alan Holdsworth, I said, oh yeah, that's kind of like, I was like, oh, that's kind of like this thing that this guy was doing, you know? I mean, it was unreal. Unreal. And another guitarist I wanna mention too, who's also passed is Jeff Lee Johnson. Um, I mean. He he played with a bit with D'Angelo. He had also played with Shannon. He played in the Decoding Society. Um, and a tremendously original voice, and and someone who is who is um, current, who I want to acknowledge two guitar players, other guitar players, and there's a, maybe three or ten. <laughs> there's a bunch of them, you know, uh, Dave Fusinski, who's from his and his band, the Screaming Headless Torosos. Um Oz Noy. Like, who's a nut, <laughs> total nut. Uh, Captain Kirk Douglas, who's the guitar player f- with The Roots. Um, Andy Black Sugar, uh, who's an incredible vocalist and guitarist. And, and I also want to acknowledge, oh man, Ronnie Drayton. Who uh who uh who who played with um, Edwin Birdsong? Who had Edwin Birdsong put out a record called Supernatural? It was a tremendous influence. I mean, so different. I mean, kind of because he's a keyboard player and singer, and he was doing something so progressive and funky and yeah. That he's someone I want to acknowledge. Uh, um I mentioned Hassan Niels who's a big influence. There was a guitarist named Larry Marsden, who was also a Trinidadian guitarist, phenomenal player. Um and just different people. I just saw huh, I just saw Dale Williams who played guitar with run He was he's been on tour with um the great saxophonist Azar Lawrence and just saw him. Um Pete Cozy, who Played with Miles Davis. Um, but right before, Mike Stern, who I also want to acknowledge is, you know, phenomenal player. Yeah. Just a, just a few shout outs. Sure, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, th- there's, I mean, speaking of, you know, just sort of like, you know, going going down kind of, you know, potential names, like, there, there's a couple other just sort of like names topics I just want to sort of throw at you sure. and, and just see. Okay, so first of all, there's this record you did with, Dejanette. um this music from the fifth uh, world thing oh yeah um with john scofield yeah and i was kind of Whew. wondering like because it's just it's a really interesting i mean there's it's really like kind of jazz and metal like you know meshing yeah. together mm-hmm. and i'm mm-hmm. curious like how that session came about and what you have to say about it
1: oh you know that was jack wanted to do something really different and he, he brought will calhoun and myself as and and um John John schofield you mean John is so cool. i mean first of all John is an extraordinarily influential player and um and is a master straight ahead but funky i mean that's the, he really really is forged and even from when he was playing with Billy Cobham and played in the Cobham Duke band you know and just to be in the same atmosphere with him, the same session, was just tremendous for me. It was, man. And, uh, and Jack wanted to, to do a project that also had uh, was influenced by kind of Native American spirituality. That was his, that was his whole point about um, that record. And bringing together this, this amalgam musicians you know was really very special project it's great it was it was witchy taito <laughs> yeah it was yeah it, it, it was uh man the original recording you know before before the mixes was was outrageous outrageous so cool
0: was he so? Was he a Living Color fan and like yes, a hard rock time. fan?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah.
0: Absolutely. And he was, yeah. He's a rock. You know, he was a rock guy.
1: You know, he was a rock guy when he was playing with Miles. And he had a he had a band. He had, he had a sorcery, sorcery, right? And he had a band with with uh, Mick Goodrick and Pat Metheny. And that was a tremendous uh, record. And uh, and Mick Goodrick is very. He's, he's, he's more known in kind of um, education circles because he, he, he wrote a book called The Advancing Guitarist, which is like one of those like Ted Green
0: chord chemistry type Bibles, you know? Yeah. We sort of skipped over Sonny Chirac like really quickly. Oh, my God, yeah. I and
1: Bird of Paradise.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I mean like I guess, you know, what, what can you say ab- about him?
1: Well, Sonny Chirac... Um, I mean, just uh, this whole idea of guitars, sheets of sound, and uh, just just really propulsive, uh, powerful attack, um, as well as a, a beautiful sense of melody. Get, you know, we're talking about. Uh, uh, I was talking about how Larry Coryell acknowledged Sonny Sharrock, and Sonny Sharrock was one of the great guitar electric avant-gardists on the guitar, and. Um, I mean his passing was just very you know in fact when he passed i was supposed to to uh i was supposed to uh, do uh, uh concerts with him and in fact he he had his fatal heart attack i i mean it was he has fatal heart attack like the the day i was getting ready to to go do some shows with him it was it was horrible um it's very painful his passing but he was just a unique, very warm, and, and also Melvin Gibbs played with Sonny Chirac. and you know he was a, you know he was one of his cast. Santana we used actually played a version of Dick Dogs, in a jam with Santana because you know Santana was a big fan as well you know and um, so Sonny Chirac was one of his um, artists who. Uh, from the left side of the dial you know and uh, you know when he did the Space Ghost thing it was so it, to me it was so great because it, it hit you know it was, it was really avant-garde in the way that this kind of odd pop culture conversation um, was was made manifest in that show that he was the the, uh, the composer for that program I, I thought it was uh, really great and it was also this great moment where someone who had been so on the edges you know was being embraced um in the greater american fabric you know i love the work he did with um last exit with bill laswell and peter bronsman and shannon you know And, and that was a great you know great barnstorming improvising band you know so Sonny Chirac is major, major influence. I, I remember getting a vinyl of "Bird of Paradise" uh, that he did with Linda Sharrock. Right. Yeah, yeah. And man, what a, what a, what an experience! I was not prepared, but I fell in love with it.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. What about uh? We, so we sort of touched on Cornell, um, but I know like on on one of the Mask Records, there's a there's a track. Saint Cobain, I guess I yeah. just would throw it. Nirvana, yeah. you know. But
1: yeah, Saint Cobain was yeah because um, I, I, Saint Cobain because um, Kurt Cobain's suicide was a was a. I mean, the deaths of of artists or, you know, you mentioned Arthur Rames, his passing, and the passing of so many great musicians. But Kurt Cobain's suicide was just a seismic. Um, blow you know I mean he is uh, the voice of his generation one of the voices of his generation if not the voice of his generation of Generation X you know so that was um, pretty shattering and and really Saint Cobain is um, I think of it now as a as a piece and even those little lyrics you know that are in there um, I wish I'd in a way I wasn't feeling judgmental about his suicide but I've come to think of it differently I've come to think of it I've come to think of it very differently but um, I'm glad I recorded it it was where I was at at the time and um you know it it's funny too, because uh when he committed suicide, I was listening to the day I tried to live, and um there's a cruel irony in that, considering you know uh, Cor- you know Chris Cornell's fate, uh, but the day I tried to live was the way I kind of processed. Kurt Cobain suicide mm. Yeah. Mm.
0: so really okay, so also you 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 briefly mentioned master of puppets, but I guess just out of out of curiosity, like, could you give me like the handful of aside from master of puppets, like the handful of metal records from any period that have been like you said game changing like what what are the like the true like metal you know top five or something to you?
1: Metal top. Peace sells, but who's buying? Megadeth. Um, even though, <laughs> it's funny, I, I, I said beg to differ, Prong, even though, I, I mean, that's kind of alternative, but that, that record has had a tremendous impact on me. Um, I'm just thinking now. Hmm. The first anthrax record <laughs> and we, we, just spending time with 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 anthrax, I tell you what also there. Their collaboration with Public Enemy was was massive for me. Um, Deep Purple, Live in Japan, that that record is, Sweet Child in Time, that record is crazy. I love that. I against the Bad Brains I against I even though it's not metal per se but I against I, that record just I'm blanking on the title <laughs> I'm just blanking on I'm blank I'm like literally blanking on the title
0: It did you you know the Bambi you are forgetting the title or mm-hmm. you, Oh it's tool it, it's a tool record but it's the tool record Oh Undertow or, Undertow or Undertow Okay
1: thank you Yeah I, like, Yeah cause first time I, s- I saw them i just wiped me out wiped me out prime of sailing the seas of cheese <laughs> that's not metal though, but i like that record
0: um and and really quick just if just to to wrap this up okay so so we sort of started with lifetime we touched on mahavishnu yes. like in your mind in terms of the records that have really brought together the, you know, hard rock or metal and, and jazz improvisation. Like, are we... W- what else belongs in that canon if we have emergency intermounting flame? Like, what oh, else okay. should be there? Okay.
1: Um, records that really bring both together?
0: Yeah, in like a really effective way that you... That you, you know, oh, for you. Oh,
1: man. All right. Um... Billy Spectrum Spectrum Without Without doubt Hmm Um don't want mm. want to uh, Blow by blow Blow by blow 100% Um Um, heavy weather uh weather report heavy weather cuz i mean my favorite of those records of, of the weather my favorite weather report record is is uh mysterious traveler <laughs> um we mentioned. Did we mentioned believe it believe it we, absolutely um Apostrophe, like Frank Zappa apostrophe, absolutely. Mm. Um. Um. You know, him of the Seventh Galaxy. Um. Return to Forever. That that record is um, Hijira. Joni Mitchell, Hijira. In terms of that, um, so we mentioned the intermounting, fl- the intermounting
0: flame would you put some of that king crimson stuff in oh there? hell's yeah um yeah. discipline yeah
1: discipline and starless and bible black but di- discipline those two records starless and bible black and but discipline absolutely um miles davis live evil straight up uh, ornick coleman science fiction things kind of really come together and think about this for a second oh it's not not jazz per se but talking has remain in light remain and remain in light is is such a weirdly it exists outside of its time that record was made in 1980 I reckon, like Remain in Light was made in nineteen eighty, and it's still like, to me, it's ridiculous. What what's what's been going on? What you know? I mean, and that like also features Adrian Blue. It's it's pretty outstanding, outrageous. Um, hmm. Uh, you know, I would I would say. The band of gypsies record, you know, is a is in terms of it's not jazz per se, but the it's just the it's really is an improvised like everything that so much you know like the song who knows is a jam, who knows is literally a song that they wrote on stage, it's incredible. Um, I'm thinking ten things after. <laughs> Um, You know, I, I, did I mention Eye Against Eye?
0: Yeah, 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 no, as, yeah. But
1: as, but as a, kind of a melting, but in terms of where the, because, you know, they were really, that's the other thing about them, they were really into jazz. They, they were really into, like, Return Forever. Like, Dr. No and Daryl Jennifer, they were really kind of into that music. So that was a big part of how they, came together. It's funny, you know like a band that, that I, because they don't really improvise, but what they do is so cinematic is explosions in the sky. I think what they, they, they're forging a kind of language that's a really, a guitar-based language is really extraordinary to me. It's really textural and... um very emotive, very emotive, and it's and the fact that they're from Texas, and the music is is without boundaries. Um, another person I want to acknowledge, in terms of metal jazz, freaking Alex Skolnick, like like we would be remiss, you know, and uh, Testament live in Eindhoven. I mean, just like he's playing the frets off the guitar, like you know, he's uh, someone I hold in very high regard. Very high regard in terms of being someone that's that is really is boldly forges both aesthetics. Um, I, I think it's pretty outstanding. Um, what he's been doing Another one uh, Is Is uh, Greg Howe Holy cow Man He's Cause he started out As a kind of You know Speed metal You know Like Uber guitar guy And he's incorporated So much jazz And so much You know I mean Really interesting You know Because he's got ex- Unbelievable chops But he's Lately Pulling in a kind of um, like almost like the influence of a Larry Carlton into what he's doing. It's I mean, Greg how, out, freaking, standing, in re- with regards to that pulling together the, jazz and rock, sensibility. Yeah, he's playing his neck off. Um, yeah. Those are. If I had to say, you know, going back to, other, like, see, because it, it's not, I don't know if it, it wouldn't be categorized as metal, but but I will say, Houses of the Holy, and and physical graffiti, like that, those are supreme records. In terms of bringing together, you know, the fact of having, you know. A song like Dire Maker and the and the Crunch, you know, and actually the Song Houses of the Holy, which is on Physical Graffiti. I can't say enough of that, about the the influence and and controversial, you know, because they've haven't always credited their sources. But uh, I mean, it's amazing the influence that that band has had, you know, just across the board. Mm. Just just oh yeah
0: cool I, I think that's a that's a great place to wind it down I, I appreciate you sort of taking me through that um, this, this has been fascinating thanks so much for yeah, taking exactly.
1: this I'll think about ten other things oh why did I mention Bob why did I mention <laughs> well you uh, can well, you last, know. Uh, I think the last thing like, and God help you I hope you edit this because t- <laughs> people say yeah we're cutting it out and you hear the podcast and it's all in there it's like e-. I want to acknowledge two of my teachers Rodney Jones and uh bruce johnson not there's there's reverend bruce johnson who played bass with dakota society but there's the guitarist bruce johnson and and they helped me out a lot
0: helped me out a lot cool cool all right thank you so much i really appreciate it hey no problemo it thanks so much for listening huge thanks to vernon for his time and stay tuned for the next episode of the heavy metal bebop podcast coming soon